agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. And before we get to today's show, I just want to quickly thank everyone who's given me updates on the availability of my new podcast, Politics Makes Me Sick, on their podcast app. It's now on Apple Podcasts, and so that, that generally means that wherever you get podcasts, it should either be available to you soon or available right away. And uh, also, I wanted to let folks know, some people were asking, does that mean you are going to be quitting the politics, guys, or changing anything? Absolutely not. This is an in addition to, as opposed to uh, instead of sort of thing, just basically because I wanted to see if I could do kind of a one-person abbreviated version of the politics guys designed, well, particularly for people who aren't necessarily huge political junkies, but still want to know kind of what's going on. Today, in episode eight of our election 2020 series, we'll be discussing Donald Trump and Joe Biden on immigration and citizenship. Immigration was one of the key issues Donald Trump campaigned on in 2016, and as president, he's worked awfully hard to keep his immigration-related campaign promises. There have been over 400 executive actions on immigration during the Trump administration, and during President Trump's time in office, and this is prior to the pandemic, which you know changed just about everything, annual net migration into the United States has fallen almost by half to around 600,000 people per year. So we'll start our discussion today with uh, the border wall, which certainly was a big part of Donald Trump's 2016 campaign and something he and his core supporters seem to believe in quite a lot. So what exactly is President Trump's argument for an uh, enhanced, increased, big, beautiful border wall? Let's start with that. What's the argument for a border wall? Doc. Well... In reading the um, stuff we had, it looks like Biden contends that the big problem is contraband. And he says that contraband comes in through the ports of entry and is not smuggled into the country across the border. Um, However, a massive amount of people, as human beings, cross the border illegally. Now, the wall will cut that down. Uh, Trump promised the wall. He usually delivers on his promises. But the big thing for me is every president, I mean every president, as back as far as I can remember, and I can remember pretty far back, have said that immigration is a huge problem. Uh, Obama said, uh, we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked, and circumventing the line of people we're waiting patiently, diligently, and lawfully to become immigrant. And I believe that. Obama said that. And as soon as Trump started building a wall, everybody said he was a racist. Now, personally, 
I I support legal immigration. I think that's a great thing. But you know, the words illegal immigration, I always love the line that Pelosi had. She said we shouldn't arrest an illegal immigrant unless they do something illegal. I love that statement. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, Skyler. First and foremost, um, with undocumented immigrants, they you have to note that crossing the border as an undocumented immigrant isn't isn't necessarily illegal. It is a civil it's a civil disruption. Like you are like just crossing the border and you're not necessarily doing anything illegal unless you commit a crime. And I feel that with Trump's stance on the border wall, he has only added five new miles to this 30-foot steel pole fence that is already at our border. There's no wall. There's just this fence. And we've already had a fence on the border. And how, how effective has that been in stopping people from crossing our border? Um, I, I just feel that Donald Trump has used a racist rhetoric when he's approaching immigration. Not that all presidents have not said, as Doc had claimed, that they felt that undocumented immigrants are a large issue in our country. And I feel that Donald Trump specifically, he has just taken a very very anti-immigration stance all around, not only with undocumented immigrants, but also like legal immigration. I mean, I feel that he's just using racist rhetoric rather than other presidents have. Okay. And let's see, Olivia. Um, Kind of similar to what Tyler was saying, but also, okay. So like, in my opinion, yes, if you cross the border at, and you don't, crossed at like one of the designated ports of entry yes technically like yeah it's illegal and you're you're committing a crime in doing that um but i think what skylar's saying is like in what nancy pelosi's statement was is that you know there's a difference in your only crime being crossing the border illegally especially if you're someone who is fleeing imminent danger um in the south which a lot of people are and you know like you can't tell me that you wouldn't do that for your own safety or your kids safety um there's a difference in that. And then, you know, that being your only crime and then living peacefully in the United States um, or coming to the United States and and committing, you know, violent crimes or drug related crimes once you're here. And I think that's like the difference that Tyler's talking about and that Nancy Pelosi is talking about. Um, however, as far as Trump's reasoning for the wall, um, I it's I would say that, his, you know, the reason that his campaign was so centered around this idea of building a wall um, is because of this fear mongering. Um, tactic that he's used, you know, since 2016, which is, you know, to make people afraid of the other. Um, and then for Trump to say, like, I have a solution to, you know, keeping the others, meaning, you know, like, typically non-white people, because it's the southern border we're worried about out. So I think, you know, even though the wall hasn't really happened, it's not, it hasn't been fully constructed, and it's going to take tens of billions of dollars to construct. So I don't know that it will happen. I think just his narrative of like, I want there to be a wall to keep people out to, um, to keep everyone safe from, you know, these, these people that he's designated as criminals and rapists um, is kind of just, you know, his tactic of, of rallying his base around him. So then from that, it sounds like uh, there's an argument that maybe the wall is 
not entirely symbolic, but certainly an important symbol of American security and safety. And and assuming that that there is some symbolic value to that, is that a is that a good thing to be investing money in, or does Joe Biden? Joe Biden's argument about uh, what economists would call the opportunity cost, meaning that uh, for every billion dollars you invest in a wall, you can't invest in another thing. Is that, do you think, a stronger argument for not necessarily abandoning border security, but making it, uh, uh, focusing it on different things other than just a wall? What do you think? Faith. I think that's a fair argument to be made, especially because I personally believe a wall is not going to really deter people from coming in. I think a lot of times these people who are coming to the U.S. Um, are coming from situations that are far more awful than any of us could really ever imagine in a lot of circumstances. So I think that actually using different ways, like I know Biden talked about um, enhancing security, adding more cameras, um, further, I forget what he said, that he wasn't wanted to bolster, but actually gearing things towards more productive ways of actually enforcing border security is going to be better than just actually using a wall, especially because, as Skylar said, the wall is actually only five miles longer than it was originally. So I just think that's probably more of a case that I could make. Okay. And and that point, uh, to that point, while there have been something around 300 miles of border improvements, in some cases, pretty, uh, uh, pretty extensive, replacing like little rickety fences with real walling, there's only actually been five, around five miles of absolutely new wall construction. Uh, let's see, uh, Noah. One thing I really like about Joe Biden's plan is actually how he wants to modernize our immigration system. Our immigration system is not great. I mean, like, I think that's a major reason why people just come across illegally is because you see these people, I mean, like, according to some federal websites that it says it takes around one to three and a half years to become a fool to the sin. And then, but that doesn't mean it's going to stop. A lot of times, I mean, like you hear stories about people saying it took them 10 years just to become a citizen of the United States to legally come here. So one major thing I do like about it is how he wants to modernize our system and change how we do this system. Because I mean, like, no offense, if it takes 10 years to come here, I'm probably going to come here illegally too. Olivia. So one of the things that Biden addresses um, in his campaign website is is that Trump is like misallocating resources. Um, And I think this is like a prime example of that where he's, you know, wanting to put uh, billions of dollars of funding toward this wall to keep people from crossing. Um, but at the same time, he has stripped resources from the border to assist people in trying to come across the right way. Um, and he's also added a whole lot of um, challenges and barriers to people um, who are trying to cross through the legal uh, designated ports of entry um, and who, you know, maybe cross illegally, but then try to turn themselves in and seek asylum. Like he's made all of that much more difficult for people. Um, but right now, because he has uh decrease the amount of people working at the ports of entry. Um, It's taking way longer for people. People are having to wait, you know, days, if not weeks, just to uh, to ask somebody for asylum and to try and do it the quote unquote right way. Um, So I think, you know, Biden's right in that, that that this is not how our funding should be used. And if you want to actually address the problem of illegal immigration, um, especially because, like we've all said, a lot of people are fleeing imminent danger and and imminent threat to their families and they're going to do whatever it takes to try and save themselves and save their families they're going to cross over if that means uh protecting themselves um but if you make it easier 
and more accessible for these people to cross over the right way and the legal way and to seek asylum the way that they're supposed to um, and increase their chances of actually being granted asylum. Because that's another problem is that people are so unlikely to actually have their cases granted. Um, why wouldn't they cross over illegally if it's just so much easier for them to, to do it that way, like Noah was saying. So I think um, funding should definitely, you know, it's being wasted on the wall when it, it could be used to actually address the problem by by uh, providing better resources for people who want to come across legally. Okay. Skylar. I also agree with not investing the billion dollars in the wall because I really liked a part of Joe Biden's plan on combating, like creating like lower numbers of immigration, like for those displaced by like gang violence, uh, famine, climate change, domestic violence. He wants to restore a billion dollars in foreign aid to to reduce the amount of people looking for asylum due to those reasons. And I feel like investing in other countries would be way more beneficial to not only us, because Donald Trump has created this isolationist ideology about the U.S. in his four years, where we don't need help from others. We can do it ourselves. He's like very pull up on your bootstraps. We can do it ourselves. No help. Um, And I feel like our relationships with the countries at the southern border have deteriorated significantly over the last four years. And I feel with Joe Biden's help in restoring that foreign aid that Donald Trump completely just axed um, would be a step forward to creating a modernized immigration system. And that brings us that there's sort of a, you could argue, a philosophical difference between the two camps on this. Joe Biden has talked a lot about focusing more on root causes of violence and poverty in Central America, especially that are uh, causing or at least a, a big factor in a lot of people trying to come into the United States, whereas Donald Trump has suggested that, well, a more of a America-centric, uh, United States of America-centric, that is, uh, approach. And what about the argument from the right that, well, it's true that violence and poverty are, are a problem. These are problems that need to be dealt with by those countries, and we can't be expected to essentially solve violence and poverty in Central America. We have to take care of our country first, and if that means building more walls to keep people out, then that's what we need to do. What do you think about that argument? Olivia? Um, so I, there's a, a, often a direct correlation between poverty and uh, a government's ability to take control over violence and, um, you know, cartel uh, organizations, uh, transnational criminal organizations in their own countries. Um, And I've said this before, I understand the argument that, you know, it's not America's responsibility to, to address problems in other countries and, you know, their own government should take care of that. But Um, In some of these cases, like with the Northern Triangle, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, um, they have the highest homicide rates in the in the world. Um, And they're also poverty stricken countries. And it's when when a country doesn't have the resources, when their own government, their own country doesn't have the resources to kind of get control, take control over and and actually be able to um, to enforce uh, uh, consequences and, and, and enforce uh, legal jurisdiction over people who are involved with, you know, gang violence and with cartel violence and uh, drug-related offenses. 
Um, I don't know how those countries are ever going to take control over that unless they have help from someone else. And um, it is it, the United States. So Biden, I think what he said, he wanted to invest like 750 million or billion. I forget what it was um, into funding, uh, you know, operations to kind of decrease uh, violence in places like Mexico and the Northern Triangle. Um, and you know, I think at some point, like it's it's necessary at some point. I think these countries have proven that they, without outside funding, they might not be able to take care of it themselves. And that's important. That is helping. That is in the United States interest. If what we're trying to address is immigration, then I agree with Joe Biden in, in addressing the root cause of the immigration. What are they fleeing from? If you take care of the issue that they're fleeing from and try to get rid of that, then that's going to decrease the problem in the United States. Okay. Doc. Uh there is a uh, saying that I have read several times today, a country without borders is not a country. Uh, and as you just said a few minutes ago about the Southern Triangle, Honduras, Guatemala, those people come north. Uh, why don't they stop in Mexico? Uh, that seems safe. Uh, why did they come all the way to the United States? Um, is it really our responsibility to go in there to those countries to make them safe? That's like starting another war uh, to go in and use the military or God knows what to uh calm them down. The other thing that worries me about all these people coming north, and this is even before uh, the uh, COVID deal, I mean, these people are coming into the country unvaccinated, uh, just no idea what kind of problems they're bringing along. and. If they do get to stay, their kids go immediately to school. Our kids can't go to school without going through a lot of vaccinations and what have you, but their kids just go. So I think that's going to cause us a lot of problems. I just think they just keep streaming north. How long is it before everything is empty down there? Okay, uh, Noah. Um, so in regards to Doc's response of why don't they stop in Mexico, Mexico isn't also a safe country in the aspects of comparison to the United States. I mean, Mexico still has the drug cartel problems. I mean, you can even look at them. They still have issues with reporters being murdered on the time. They also have politicians that are murdered all the time as well. So, I mean, like, I think the reason they're coming to the United States is because technically we are still considered a very safe country for people to come to. So, I mean, like, to me, if I would be fleeing somewhere and then somebody would be like, well, why didn't you stop in the middle? I'll be like, well, because if someplace is going to be safer for me and my family, I'm going to stop in the most safest place that I can get to within a reason. Okay. Skyler. The reason why most people don't stop in Mexico on their way up is because we were founded on a nation of immigrants. Every single person who has started out in the U.S. except the indigenous cultures and indigenous populations that live lived already in the northern america northern america and southern america 
continents, um, almost everybody can track their lineage back to a different country. Nobody is 100% an American. What is an American? That That's, I mean, I feel that us just cutting off all of these ways for people to seek help and when they're fleeing, all of these detrimental aspects to their lives and their families' lives that just make the countries that don't have the resources, like Olivia said, they just don't have the funding. They don't have the, the groups of people to be able to help reduce the amount of like homicide in a country. And along with Mexico, even their own police force is corrupted. Like you would have to maybe potentially end up getting bribed by them. Like you would have to pay them money just to like get past a roadblock or something. And I wouldn't deem that safe. Would any of us who were traveling would be deemed that safe? Most likely not. So we would avoid that kind of situation. So what's the difference for those undocumented? And you also have to remember being undocumented isn't a crime. It's not a crime. It is just a civil violation. Olivia. Um, yeah, I agree with everything that Skylar was saying. And um, I also want to point out that in Mexico, it's it's not it's I mean, violence is a major issue. Violence is rampant in Mexico. Maybe the homicide rates aren't as high per capita as I was saying they are are in the Northern Triangle countries. But um, the transnational criminal organizations in in Mexico have actually monopolized um, not just the sale of drugs at this point, but also there's a problem with sex trafficking and they've even monopolized the oil industry. Um, Pemex is the national oil company in Mexico and um, the cart- there are cartels now who are stealing oil and then selling it for lower prices to people. Um, so it's not like the, the problem of cartel violence and of cartels kind of running Mexico rather than the actual government running Mexico. Um, I, I agree with everything, you know, like we were saying, I don't, Mexico is not, if you have the opportunity to just go a little bit further and, and try to seek asylum in a country that is not having these problems, I don't know why anybody would make that journey from somewhere further south and then stop in Mexico knowing that they're still at a great risk of violence to themselves and their families. Um, the policy is called the first safe place policy um, that we're addressing, which is trying to say that uh, that Mexico is the quote unquote first safe place that these a lot of these people are crossing into um, and making it illegal for immigrants to seek asylum in the United States if they didn't first seek asylum in Mexico. Um, but again, that policy, you know, other than just making it Mexico's problem and not the United States, um, it doesn't really make sense to me because Mexico, based on a lot of indicators, is not a quote unquote safe place, especially compared to the United States. All right. Doc. Uh, just uh, as an aside, there are an awful lot of poor people and homeless people in the United States that need to be taken care of that aren't being taken care of. They should come first. Uh, when you talk about violence, uh, I would not want to legally or illegally immigrate to this country and go to some place like Seattle or Portland um, or New York or Chicago or New Orleans, name a few more, 
Uh, so this is not a great safe place either. Uh, and I think an awful lot of these people that are coming across the border into this country are doing it for the economic uh, enhancements, not necessarily the safety enhancements. And I'll say one more thing. When you talk about this country being built on immigrants, remember, they were documented. They came through Ellis Island. Uh, or they came from Asia and came through San Francisco and were documented. Uh, so we were built on a immigrants that were documented and we knew where they came from and where they went and who they were. Okay. And on the uh, on the economics and crime issue, while you know, I think it's important to point out that certainly there are problems with crime, and oftentimes in large urban areas in the United States. Looking at the crime statistics uh, comparatively to uh, a lot of places in Central America, it, uh, it really dwarfed by what we see down there, which are truly uh, truly violent and awful situations. But uh, one thing that's come up is uh, a number of people have mentioned is. Uh, asylum or people fleeing violence and so forth. And that brings us to an important change in policy that we saw under the Trump administration. And that was a change in who should qualify for asylum, with the change being that uh, at the time, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said that uh, people who are suffering from gang violence or out of control crime, domestic violence, that is not legitimate grounds for asylum. So the question I ask is, is that is that should that be legitimate grounds for asylum in the United States? What What do you think? Do you agree with the administration's change in policy of that or not? Uh, Noah, um, when I wrote my paper about this, I was shocked that actually that Trump and them and Sessions think that that's not an actual reason to flee a country. I mean, again, it's like you're going to protect your own safety, and so. I even made the comparison that we like the week before how we talked about Women's Week in America, how he made all of October Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but then you don't even um, see that as an actual opportunity for people to leave their country. And so I just feel like it is an actual reason to leave a country. I mean, like if if somebody is physically harming you or potentially can harm you, can kill you, that is a legitimate reason to me to want to leave a country. If my life is in danger, I'm going to be leaving and making sure I am safe and that everybody else around me is also safe as well. And so for them to say that they that's not an actual excuse, I mean, like, I just think it's a big slap in the face to people who have to experience these things. And I mean, because, like, they're not going to experience, like, gang violence or domestic violence that we are aware of. And then for them to say that's not an actual reason to come to this country, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Faith. Yeah, I agree a lot with what Noah's saying. I also think that it's not a really great look on the United States, especially where we're supposed to be champions for human rights and advocating to all these other countries to stop violence. But we're like, these people who are experiencing these kinds of violence aren't even able to come to the United States. I just think it's kind of hypocritical. Olivia. I think the Trump administration absolutely knows that a major reason that gen uh, genuine refugees are trying to get asylum in the United States is because they're fleeing um, gang-related violence. 
um, especially in, you know, all the countries that I've been talking about, but Mexico, for example, um, a lot of the time, the way that that young boys get involved in gangs and cartels is because they're forced into it. Um, they're forced with violence into it and with threats of violence on themselves and their families. Um, and, you know, I, I think the Trump administration probably does understand, like, I, I think morally, yeah, like 100% that is a, a valid reason to seek asylum in the United States. But I think that if you invalidate that reason and say that you can't, that that's not, you won't qualify for asylum if you're just fleeing gang related violence. Um, they know that that disqualifies a whole, like a vast majority of, of people who are fleeing violence because that's a major cause of the violence. So um, I don't think it's really that anybody actually believes that people shouldn't um, be fleeing that situation and, and that that's not safe for them. I think it's more so just a tactic of decreasing who can legally be granted asylum. What about the change in policy uh, now pre prior to the Trump administration, when when people applied for asylum, they were generally uh, uh, paroled into the United States uh, to await their immigration case, their hearing or families detained together. And under the Trump administration, this changed and the through in part the migrant protection protocols, which is having asylum seekers wait in Mexico as opposed to the United States while their applications are being considered, and also a zero tolerance policy saying that uh, all migrants who cross the border without permission, including asylum seekers, would be referred to the Department of Justice for prosecution. And the argument behind this is that uh, is that a lot of people were in essence taking advantage of the system getting using uh, uh, applications for asylum as a way to get into the United States and then sort of vanishing into the great interior of the U.S. never to show up again for uh, for any sort of hearings or anything like that. So is that is that a legitimate concern that that a large number of people are essentially gaming the system to get, if not citizenship in the United States, a lot of the benefits without actually going through the the, the documented protocols and, and going doing it the right way, as kind of referred to in the, the quote that uh, Doc had from actually President Obama. What do you think? Doc. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of gaming the system. I, th I think an awful lot of people who are here illegally have overstayed their overstayed their visas. I mean, they came in, they got a visa uh, for one reason or another to go to school to to do whatever, and just never left. And this country is an awful easy country to disappear into the great interior, as you said, um, especially when some states are passing out driver's licenses. Uh, California is allowing uh, illegal immigrants to vote in local elections. Uh, so they're, they, they, they have sort of melted into uh into the into the population um but yeah i think i think an awful lot of them are gaming the system and and i think an awful lot of them are here for the economic uh economics they can come here and get a job paying a lot more than they can get a job uh in their home country uh and they're not fleeing from anything. 
I mean, if I can walk across the border and quadruple my salary, I'll probably do that. And one other thing I, I think about when we talk about fleeing the violence, who's going to stay and fight the good fight? Who's going to stay and defeat these people that are causing all the violence? I mean, you can run away and run away and run away, and that's not going to help a thing. Faith. Um, I think more regarding the um, economic argument is that a lot of times, yes, if these people can come over and make three times more, a lot of the wages that they're getting in the U.S. aren't super great wages. A lot of the great wages that they had in their original country were practically unlivable wages. If you have a family and you're trying to raise a family, you don't even have enough money to provide meals on their table, um, meal on the table. I think that's a huge problem. And of course, yeah, I would probably try to come to the United States too for a better opportunity. And two, in terms of like staying and fighting the good fight is the problem in a lot of these countries is the corruption and the um, military's involvement in the government. So if you're an innocent civilian, I'm not exactly sure the resources that you're going to have to fight back, especially when the military is in cooperation with the government. You literally have almost no resources to be able to fight back. All right. Skylar. It's been it's been proven by studies and research that immigrants of any kind, whether they be undocumented or be a naturalized citizen, they are highly more likely less to commit violent crimes. Um, and most of them won't do anything to jeopardize their ability to stay in the country. And the economic aspect, um, how, how are the undocumented reaping economic benefits other than maybe finding a job that will employ them? They don't have a social security number. How are they going to reap the benefits that those with a social security number do? Um, I just feel that there's just this fear mongering that has been painted around all kinds of immigration. Um, Donald Trump has expressed that he, through what I get from how Donald Trump speaks about immigration, is that he would rather handpick his populace. He would, he's had a problem with brown people migrating to this country, whether it be legally or they're crossing over the border and becoming undocumented. Um, he has expressed fondness of immigration from countries like Norway, which are predominantly white countries. And having white people come to an already pretty heavily white country isn't adding diversity. Um, I feel like he just wants to put roadblocks and makes, make the less fortunate lives more more difficult for them to navigate. Now, let's turn to one specific type of uh, unauthorized or illegal immigrant to the United States. And these are people often called dreamers, as people who are brought into the United States as children. And it seems like there's a lot of sympathy on, uh, to a certain extent, on both sides of the aisle for these folks. And in, in fact, that led to President Obama's DACA program, which essentially, uh, well, it, it deferred prosecution of any of them, allowing them essentially into the country. And what, what do you, 
What do you take as uh, President Trump's position on this? Because in his first debate with Joe Biden, he said, we are going to take care of the dreamers. Yet the Trump administration actually is fighting in court to have DACA stopped. So what is this position? And, and do you agree with the Trump administration or more with Joe Biden on this? Olivia. So Trump just takes like a very anti-immigration, especially. OK, so not not just anti-immigration, because he has said that I think it was Norway that he said would be like preferable, quote unquote, immigration. But he he has just a, a generally anti immigrant when it's especially from the South and from, as Skylar said, from non-white countries, um, whether it's legal or illegal. And that shows in his stance on DACA. Um, and, you know, I think he has found a base that is also very anti-immigration and a base that tends to, I hate to say it, but but prefer a country that is more um, homogenous, if that makes sense, and a country that, you know, Trump has kind of used dog whistles. Um, frequently that this country, you know, is, is kind of a white country. And, he, and so, um, you know, I think that, that it's appealing to his base to not protect people who, whether it was within their own control or not, were brought here or came here illegally. Um, I think it suits him and his narrative that he's pushed since 2016 to not protect these people if he's wanting to keep support from his base. Um, but I prefer Biden's stance on this because um, so like we were saying before with asylum, we have to consider what is the actual economic toll um, that immigrants, illegal and legal, have on the United States. And actually, the toll of ending the DACA program is supposed to be, I want to say the number was like $433 billion in GDP um, would be lost uh, because these people, you know, on average, DACA recipients, first of all, they have to pay like a $465 fine, um, which goes to the government, which then funds uh, resources for them. Um, so they are paying for it. But also um, immigrants on average pay, I think it was like 13 billion into the social security program, but only withdraw like 1 billion. So they're helping fund social security and they do pay taxes on average, an average immigrant legal or illegal pays 8% of their wages in taxes. So um, they're actually helping the economy in a lot of ways. And most studies would say that they're not stealing jobs because as I think Faith said, a lot of the jobs being worked by especially illegal immigrants are low paying jobs a lot of the time in agriculture. And we desperately need immigrants working agricultural jobs, um, not jobs that are really being stolen by American citizens who tend to not go for those jobs. So um, I think actually immigrants do a lot more for the economy than we give them credit for. Um, and the toll of ending DACA would actually harm the economy. Okay. Doc. Uh, I trying to get my mind wrapped around, are these people, were they born here uh, of, and their parents were undocumented? Or were they brought here after their parents were here undocumented? Right. In any, in well, any case, I just want to just, just to interrupt, Doc. Th those would be two separate issues because under the under the Fourteenth uh, Amendment, actually, anyone who's born here is in fact a citizen of the United States, and uh, whereas people who are brought here as kids, and, and that's that's what we're talking about here with the Dreamers, they are not citizens, and so the argument is over, the discussion is over whether or not they should be allowed to stay in the country legally, and if so, on what on what grounds? Okay, I got you. But 
I believe when you go through the criteria, you know, they obeyed the law, stayed in the school, or enlisted in the military, passed a background check. Uh, personally, I think they ought to be allowed to stay. Uh, good citizens, I mean, uh, my statement on the paper I wrote was, you know, if the family stays, if the kids stay, the whole family stays, either everybody stays or everybody goes. You can't break up a family. But I think the program should stand the way Obama put it together. I mean, uh, I, I just think there's no reason to throw those people out of the country if they're good citizens. Okay. Skylar. Um, I, I just looked this up and Doc, no, you can't join the military if you're undocumented um, because you have to be living permanently in the U.S. and have crossed the U.S. Uh, through a legal port of entry and not be undocumented. What about the Trump administration's argument that the problem here with DACA is that it's actually administrative overreach by the Obama administration and that they're in favor of doing something for the Dreamers, but they want Congress to act on this as opposed to the executive uh, overreaching his authority by by just issuing kind of a blanket, a blanket deferral of prosecution. Is there is there something to that argument? I mean, shouldn't Congress be doing something as opposed to the executive acting more or less unilaterally on this? What do you think? Doc? Yeah, the Congress should should do this. We ought to get back to the three sections of government where Congress does what it does, the executive does what he does, and the judicial do what they do. Uh, we have to get away from this business where uh, the executive keeps waving his hands and getting things done. Uh, I would like to go back and clarify one thing about being in the military, it says what I read, the Obama administration created DACA to protect dreamers, undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children, obeyed the law once here, stayed in school or enlisted in the military. Uh, I have read numerous accounts of undocumented Immigrants who have been in the military got out and became citizens. So I don't know how they're getting into the military if it's against the law to do that, but they're doing it. I, I believe that, uh, as I understand the law on this, I believe that unless that if you are a completely undocumented immigrant in this country, you just can't get through the screening process to join the military. But you do not have to be a you do not have to be a naturalized citizen to serve in the military. I think that's that's uh, an important distinction there. Olivia. Um, as for what you asked about this unilateral approach, I think that 
yes, I agree. This is a problem that's occurred under several administrations um, of the executive kind of, uh, I don't know how to, like, overlooking the authority of the other branches of government and um, and just kind of make using executive orders and, and doing things without um, without first seeking the approval from like Congress. And that's that's a major problem. Um, but we also see a lot of that under the Trump administration. And I think at this point, yes, like 100 percent Congress should be should be sought and their approval should be sought on this issue. But um, as we've stated, DACA is doing a lot more good than bad um, in most in a lot of people's eyes. And I just I don't know that we need to mess with it at this point. I think the economic damage of of removing DACA and also just the moral damage of um, because, like I said before, these people, it's so it's every two years you have to apply and they pay a fee to apply. So when you're promised that, okay, this fee is going to cover you for two years. If you just strip that away from them, like that's there's a moral problem there too. They've already paid for this, and now you're going to tell them that they're no longer protected. And I also just want to kind of go to what um, both Doc and Skylar were saying because I think Doc's point was that um, DACA, a lot of DACA recipients have been, you know, for the most part, even though they're not technically citizens, have um, been lived here peacefully and and kind of contributed to the economy and not been committing crimes and um, creating any kind of damage to the United States. And that's not the argument just for DACA recipients. It's the argument for immigrants uh, in general is that that we should be really focused and especially from Biden's perspective, we should be focusing on um, just deporting and persecuting the ones who are committing crime and actively hurting the United States, um, you know, through crime and through violence, but for, rather than seeking out people who are just trying to live here and create a better lives life for themselves with their families. Um, so, you know, I think what Doc's argument was for why DACA recipients should be able to stay and continue to, to be protected kind of extends to all immigrants who have, you know, come here and are, are not really doing anything to harm the United States. Okay. Let's talk about for a little bit about uh, legal immigration. I know most of the conversation tends to focus on illegal and undocumented immigrants, but there are some pretty important differences between the two camps on legal immigration as well. Uh, currently, our immigration system favors uh, what, what you might call family ties because 63 percent of all green cards, its permanent resident status, are based on family connections in the United States, with only around 13 percent being employment based. And the President Trump has called for an end to what's called chain migration, which is that family connection migration. And he also wants to eliminate the visa lottery program, where around last year, 50,000 green cards were awarded by lottery from people that applied from countries that are underrepresented in the United States. And also the idea of imposing a means test or a wealth test for a green card uh, for people applying, being able to demonstrate that they won't necessarily won't need to go on or are unlikely to go on any sort of federal or government assistance in the near future. What do you think about the Trump-based approach as opposed to what uh, what Joe Biden is, is proposing? What do you see as the differences and, and which approach do you prefer? Faith. Um, the approach that more that I think President Trump is going for is more of a merit-based approach where I think Joe Biden is more going on kind of a humanitarian approach. Um, like what you said with the rules that Trump is looking to put in place, um, like put in a system where applicants will actually have like more of a point system where they'll be rewarded for having like a valuable skill, being able to offer to employer, have an advanced education or playing to create a job. Um, where 
um, Joe Biden is more looking to is looking to more kind of allow for an easier pathway to citizenship for 11 million immigrants that are actually looking for permanent legal status. Um, and also doing this kind of what Olivia talked about with the system to allow people working in the agricultural industry to continue to work in the U.S. because of that. Um, and also looking to kind of enhance the diversity lottery program because it does allow for people in countries that have low immigration to the U.S. to continue to immigrate to the U.S. All right. Noah. Yeah, kind of going off what Faith was saying, I really do like one of Biden's, a uh, couple of Biden's plans with this, which is the helping the 11 million immigrants that are already in the United States that lack legal um, citizenship. So, I mean, like, I think that's an actual great option. So then they can actually um, feel safe here and not have to constantly worry about being potentially deported. I also like the idea of assisting farm workers to make sure they also have a path to citizenship because a lot of times you hear that they're stealing these jobs or doing this or doing that. But a lot of the jobs that they're taking are jobs that we don't even want to work ourselves. And so if they're coming over here and doing these jobs, I don't see a problem with that. And also, again, um, Trump is kind of going off a merit-based one where it's like he's kind of wanting you to have like some sort of vocational trade to come over here to the United States. Like, are you a carpenter? Or are you a plumber or something like that? I mean, like, that's an actual good idea. I mean, like, we don't have a lot of those people here in the United States. So I feel like that is a great option. But I feel like we also need to have, like, as Faith was saying, a humanitarian option as well. Like, my family's here. I should be able to come here as well. And so it's like we need to make like a combination of both to have that option. All right. Olivia. Uh, well, a lot of other countries, which is uh, one of the defenses on the right for this this merit based idea um, for immigration, a lot of other countries, I want to say like Canada and maybe even Australia was one of them that has kind of a similar system that, you know, you have to prove that you um, have something to offer to the country that you're trying to immigrate into and that you'll you'll have a positive impact rather than a negative impact through using um, government aid and government resources. Um, I think as Faith and Noah have said, the difference here and why it's so hard to argue on this topic between the right and the left is that um, it's it's really based on how much of a humanitarian responsibility um, you believe the United States has to help people in need. Um, and I think that's the difference between Trump and Biden. And, you know, I do understand that it would, you know, best case scenario, you take in immigrants that are going to have a positive impact on the United States economy. Um, however, I personally feel, and I, I think this is kind of how Joe Biden's approach has gone as well, is that, that there is a moral obligation when you are a country that has the resources to provide shelter and to provide uh, opportunity to people who did not choose, they didn't choose to be born on within borders of another country that does not offer, offer them the opportunity of a comfortable and, and prosperous lifestyle. Um, you know, I think that's the major difference is that Biden kind of feels this moral obligation for the country to take in people um, who oftentimes are coming from poverty and maybe will have to rely on government resources. Um, you know, and, and it just kind of depends on how much responsibility you feel the country has in that. OK. And today's last word is going to go to you, Doc. No, this. Uh... This whole thing is uh, kind of humorous to me because we haven't talked about many people from the Middle East or Far East. Uh, we're, we're primarily talking about 
South America and Mexico, but I talked to my granddaughter the other day, and she is a critical care nurse. And she's also a traveling nurse. She travels around the country quite a bit. And I asked her what she was up to, and she said she's trying to learn Arabic. And I said, you live in Phoenix, a lot of Spanish-speaking people in Phoenix. Why are you one? Why do you want to learn Arabic? She said, I'm tired of having all these doctors speaking to one another, and I can't talk, tell what they're saying. I said, well, you better learn a little Farsi, too, if you want to, if you really want to deal with that. But, you know, we're talking about people, you know, who are farmers. There's a lot of really high-end people coming into this country from India and other places in the Middle East. Uh, that are bringing a lot of talent. Absolutely, absolutely, and we 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 only, as you pointed out, Doc, we we focus mostly on sort of low wage, low skill immigration, and the the issue of higher skill immigration in medicine and tech and other things is uh, uh, something unfortunately we won't be able to get to today. But uh, in fact, we will be wrapping things up right now at this point. But before I go, I just want to remind everyone that is listening, that if you have a question, just let us know, mail at politicsguys.com, or you can post a comment in the episode link we'll put up on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page, and we will do our best to answer your question or respond to your comment in an upcoming episode. And if in addition to this series on the 2020 elections and our regular weekend show, you'd like a third full-length Politics Guys episode each and every week, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of everything and other good stuff at various levels. So check it all out, patreon.com slash politicsguys. And as always, if you can't afford to become a supporter but you want all that content, just send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I am more than happy to get you all set up with all that stuff. Finally, we'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share episodes on social media. The executive producers of Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Slesnowski. We'll be back with our weekly news roundup analysis show on Saturday and the next segment in this Election 2020 series on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.